everyone. This is Patrick Ridgell with Transamerica, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. So, Tom, you've just completed another article, and this one's called Markets Battle Forward into the Fourth Quarter. And as I often like to do, I'm going to go ahead and quote a sentence or two from what you wrote. And in this case, I'm just going to start right at the top. And you begin with, like a punch-drunk boxer awaiting corner time to regroup for the final rounds of a fight, stocks concluded the third quarter with new market lows. Now well behind on the scorecard for calendar year 2022, investors had begun for the fourth quarter of 2022 assessing not only lower equity prices, but also interest rates near multi-year highs, representative of a year in which the hits just seem to keep coming. That's uh, that's an interesting metaphor, Tom. you care to elaborate on it? Uh, yes, Patrick, and and as you said, uh, that was the opening paragraph. So it it does get better from there. <laughs> but uh, the point here, uh, and this is of course uh, stating the obvious, is that this has been a rough year, a really rough year for both stock and bond investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we said in our mid-year market outlook paper back in July. Uh, since last January, and in quoting Motown legend Martha Reeves, there has pretty much been nowhere to run to and nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. And that nowhere has only gotten worse since then, as stocks, as measured by the S&P 500, finished the third quarter uh, on September 30th at their lowest point since November 2020. And longer-term bond yields, as measured by the 10-year U.S. Treasury rate, uh, which exceeded 4% on an intraday basis on September 28th, have reached their highest levels since March 2008. Mm. Those are those are certainly some sobering numbers, Tom. Um, how do you think investors should be processing all of this right now? Well, Patrick, I think times like these sort of serve to emphasize what I believe are two of the most important attributes necessary for successful long-term investing, which mm. are to be realistic and to be opportunistic. Hmm. Uh, So the reality of the situation is that both the stock and bond markets hit a real rough spot in the final weeks of this recently concluded third quarter, uh, which consisted of a lot of unfavorable news and developments, further exacerbating the same economic and market issues we've been dealing with all year. I I now call them the four culprits, inflation, interest rates, recession risk, and corporate earnings. Those four market concerns have all been on a downward track uh, going back to before the year began. And then about June or so, markets began to rally pretty much on what turned out to be a couple of incorrect interpretations. That one, we had seen peak rates of inflation. And two, that the Fed was preparing for a pivot to easing interest rates to 2023. Uh, Both of those premises have since been proven for the most part unfounded, Uh, beginning with the Federal, beginning with Federal Reserve uh, Chair Jay Powell's quote unquote pain speech in late August, uh, basically refuting any notion that pausing or reducing interest rates was anywhere close to being on the Fed's agenda and, and that their goal of reducing inflation could, uh, quote unquote, bring some pain to households and businesses. And this 
uh, was, of course, confirmed when both year-over-year core Consumer Price Index, or CPI, and core Personal Consumption Expenditures, or PCE, inflation reports for August came in higher than July. So that kind of shot the peak inflation argument, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. The Fed then further reiterated a a more hawkish tone uh, after raising the Fed funds rate another 75 basis points at their September meeting uh, to a target range lower bound of 3%, uh, with, of course, expressed commentary, more would follow. And this then filtered through to an increasing probability of recession, not just a growth recession, as some believe we are currently in right now, but a more widespread recession in the year ahead. Mm-hmm. And that, in turn, fueled increasing worries about corporate earnings and profitability expectations for stocks in the year ahead. So, Patrick, that's your realistic take, so to speak, uh, that I think rational and prudent investors need to take into account. And Mm -hmm. once they do, the next step is the opportunistic side of all this, Mm -hmm. which is to sort through some of the recent collateral damage and see where the longer term opportunities might be. Okay, so where do you begin with that? I always like to start with history. Uh, You know the old saying, history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So big picture here for starters, real big picture. Uh, As of the end of the third quarter, the S&P 500 was down on a year-to-date price basis by almost exactly 25%. Now, going back over the past 90 years to 1932, there have only been four instances that the S&P 500 was down more than 20% over a complete calendar year on a total return basis. Mm -hmm. And those were 1937, when it was down 35%, 1974, down 26%, 2002, down 22%, 2008, down 37%. So that alone kind of tells us what an anomalous year this has been historically. However, In every one of those four bear market calendar years since 1932, uh, in which the S&P 500 was down more than 20% the following year, it it was up substantially. And that would be 1938, when it was up 31%, 1975, up 37%, 2003, up 29%, and 2009, up 27%. So I think those numbers in and of themselves help to provide some degree of perspective. Yeah, they sure do. I mean, there's no question about it. But but of course, each of those historical examples you just cited represented a different bear market with different reasons why stocks declined mm-hmm. and, and ultimately a different path onward and upward. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you see this market we're in right now getting back on track? Uh, yeah, yes. So back to the here and now. Mm-hmm. I think a path forward for stocks probably looks something like this. First, yes, inflation stays hot into next year. But by the second half of 2023, we start to see core rates for CPI and PCE begin to moderate toward 4% or lower uh, based on Fed rate hikes, eventual softening in the labor markets, and some loosening of global supply chain bottlenecks as the economy continues to shift from goods to services. And yes, we fall into recession. 
but it's relatively moderate in nature, more similar to the downturns experienced in 1991 and 2000, 2001, therefore perhaps lasting about eight months with peak to trough GDP declines in the 1% to 2% range, rather than a more prolonged and severe recession, such as those experienced during 1981, 82, 2007, 2009, lasting more than a year, and with peak to trough GDP declines in the 2.5 to 5% range. And to be and to be clear, Patrick, we do believe we are likely headed into recession during the year ahead. However, the market focus, we believe, is now turning toward how long and how bad it will be. At this point, we would attribute about an 80% probability of a recession per se, and within that, about a 60% probability of it being a moderate type uh, along the lines of what I just mentioned, and about a 20% probability it turns out more prolonged and severe. So let's say it shakes out more on the moderate side, which means the market could begin to discount an economic recovery while the recession is still occurring. That would, in fact, be consistent with history and similar to upside market recoveries that occurred during recessions in August 1982, January 1991, and March 2009. Then you have the Fed uh, potentially concluding its tightening cycle sometime uh, by the second half of 2023. And uh, after some contraction of corporate earnings between now and then, the market starts to discount a profits recovery in calendar year 2024, perhaps during the second half of 2023. So, Patrick, this is a realistic path, in my opinion, for stocks, but it's not necessarily going to be a completely linear and sunny trip along the way. In fact, Mm -hmm. it will probably be a real slog uh, through uh, the rain, sleet, and snow uh, with a good number of fits and starts along the way. But given how much the market has fallen since last January. I think at the end of this slog, stocks a year or so from now could be higher by about double digits, which I think a lot of investors would gladly take at this point. And that would still be well below those historical bear market recovery years I just mentioned. Uh, And of course, it will also be important to realize there will likely be a lot of volatility and some downside risk to stock prices in the interim. So uh, clearly uh, not a market for faint hearts, uh, as we have said before. Mm. Mm. So, Tom, you covered a lot just now. And just to recap real quick, you're looking for a somewhat modest type recovery in the stock market between now and year end. Is is that right? That's right. I'm sticking with the one-year price target we put out in our mid-year market outlook last July for the S&P of 4,050. Okay. Uh, so modest upside between now and uh, the end of the year. And how about further out? I, I think for mid-year 2023, call it end of June 2023, I'm comfortable with an S&P 500 target at about, 40 about 4250. Uh, so uh, a continuing upward grind through the first half of next year. Uh, but this adds up to close to double digits from where we are right now. And it's predicated on moderate, but not severe recession, core inflation eventually mitigating into the 4% range 
uh, during that first half of next year. Uh, the Fed's tightening cycle ending also in the first half of 2023 with a mid 4% handle on the Fed funds rate uh, and an expected range on the 10-year Treasury yield uh, of three, uh, three and three quarters to 4%. Tom, let's turn to the fixed income markets more specifically for a couple of minutes. And as you mentioned earlier, bonds have taken more than a few hits this year. But I believe you're looking at what you believe to be some opportunities here as well. That's right, Patrick. I think there could be some very strong opportunities in both high yield and investment grade bonds right now. Uh, As of the close on October 3rd, the average high yield bond was yielding better than 9.5% its highest rate since March 2020, and the average investment grade bond was yielding 5.4%, its highest level since June 2009. Patrick, this is meaningful income, something a lot of bond investors did not think we would see again for some time. Mm. Uh, Now, just over a year ago, on September 30th, 2021, that average high-yield bond was yielding slightly over 4%. Actually, 4.13% to be exact. So its yield has more than doubled and then some. In fact, it doubled plus about uh, one and a quarter percent. Uh, and as of the av- and as for the average investment grade bond yield, a year ago that was at less than two percent. To be exact, it was at 1.86%. So that yield has close to tripled since yeah. then. Hmm. Uh, now, now the counter argument here is that you have higher uh, inflation and the risk of recession impacting credit spreads. Both very fair points. Uh, However, in in my judgment, uh, if you are a bond investor and you believe there is a decent probability inflation rates subside in the year ahead, again, let's say to about the 4% level on year-over-year core CPI and PCE, and you believe a pending recession is more likely to be moderate in nature, uh, then I think you may want to seriously consider uh, locking in these types of yields. Yeah, sort of a renaissance for fixed income investing right now. Is, it, is that a fair statement? Yes. For fixed income buyers, no question. Uh, it has been a long, long time, more than a decade, since we've seen these types of yields in the Treasury and corporate bond markets. And that's clearly something a, I think a lot of investors previously put off on bonds over the past uh, decade because of their low yields are taking and probably should be taking into serious consideration. Hmm. Tom, we haven't talked about seasonality or calendar history in the markets, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that we are now in the month of October. (laughs) Any immediate thoughts about that? (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, October has had more than its fair share of market ghosts. I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Uh, The statistic investors uh, tend to remember a lot is that of the 20 worst days in market history, uh, as measured by percentage loss in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, nine of them have occurred uh, in October. Nine out of 20? That's a lot of ghosts. That's close to a monopoly. (laughs) Yes, I guess you could say that. Uh, And of course, uh, those ghosts include some of history's most painful days, Uh, such as uh, the two most infamous crashes ever in 1929 and 1987, as well as uh, the global financial crisis in 2008, 
a couple of mini crashes in 1932 and 1937, and uh, the Asian financial crisis in 1997. Sort of sounds like October is haunted, Tom. Uh, it, it does, uh, to yeah. some extent. Uh, but the counter to this, Patrick, uh, I'm happy to tell you, is that over the past 70-plus uh, years, since 1950, October ranks a most respectable sixth among all calendar months with a cumulative average return of plus 0.7%. Uh, the worst month by far, and this year clearly padded to its lead, has been September with a 73-year average of negative 0.7%, pretty much mm -hmm. the mirror image of October. So breathe a sigh of relief. We're, we're done until next year with that one, uh, but not before it most definitely lived up to its billing uh, this time around, uh, as we just mentioned. Uh, so October probably is at the top of the list for its absolute number of market ghosts, uh, which of course fits well with its overall reputation. Uh, but other than that, it's actually been a very good month for the markets over the course of time. Okay. So no reason to be supernaturally scared about the month we're in right now. Okay. Fair enough. Now let's move on down the calendar one more month to November. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Midterm elections are coming up next month. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts here from a from a purely market-oriented perspective, of course? <laughs> yes, yes, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think midterm elections can have an impact on the markets. At least history seems to infer that. And particularly so when uh, we have at least one of the major chambers of Congress up for grabs regarding party control. And this year we have both. Uh, I'll start with the Senate, uh, which is currently dead even with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. But of course, uh, the Democrats have the effective majority as Vice President Harris casts the tie-breaking vote in the event of any split decisions. I think the odds probably favor the Democrats maintaining that advantage or even achieving an outright majority in large part due to this year's rotation. Uh, out of uh, 35 incumbent Senate seats up for re-election this year, 24 of them are held by Republicans. So that's a lot of turf uh, for the GOP to defend in this cycle. I think the House is where the markets could really begin turning their focus to in the next few weeks. The Democrats hold a very slim majority there uh, by eight seats with three seats currently vacant. So if the Republicans pick up six seats, they take majority and flip control. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where we get some interesting overlap of political and market historical data, Patrick. Since 1934, the party not in control of the White House has picked up seats at an average rate of 27 seats per midterm election. So let's hone in on, on that even a little more. Mm -hmm. Since 1934, there have been 13 midterm elections during the first term of a newly elected president, uh, such as we have right now. And in only two of those elections, did the party not in control of the White House not gain seats in the House. And those were in 1934 uh, during the Great Depression in 2002, right after the 9-11 terror attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those were, of course, two very anomalous election cycles. So at least historically speaking, this would seem to favor the Republicans regaining majority control of the House. Now, looking even closer, 
Over the past century, there have only been four instances when a midterm election during a newly elected president's first term, such as we have right now, resulted in a change of control in the House from the president's party to the president's opposing a party. And those occurred in 1954, 1994, 2010, and 2018. There's an old saying, Patrick, that the market prefers gridlock in Washington. I'm not sure how true that really is per se, but the aftermath of those four midterm elections I just mentioned when the House turned from a first-term incumbent president's party to that of his opposing party, does indeed, at least on its face, tend to support that theory. Specifically, for the 12 months following those four midterm elections in which party control shifted in the House during an elected president's first term, the S&P 500 posted total returns ranging from 4% to 40%, with an average one-year total return of plus 23%. So uh, before I go any further, Patrick, a bit of context on all this. Obviously, there were numerous other factors and catalysts driving the markets after those four midterm elections I just mentioned. Uh, there is no way I can stand here today and say uh, with any real degree of uh, historical confidence that, those, election, that uh, those elections were the key driver or even a key driver of those market returns in the year after those uh, four elections. But in the spirit of an eloquent four-word phrase investor, investors often like to use, that being all else being equal, there is certainly enough history and current circumstances, in my opinion, to warrant more than just the passing interest in next month's midterm elections from a pure market perspective, of course. Hmm. Well, Tom, as usual, we've covered a lot today. A rough sell-off in both stocks and bonds, inflation and recession risk, uh, Fed policy and interest rates, midterm elections and market ghosts. And in terms of our upcoming podcasts, I believe those will include the results and market implications of next month's elections. And then after that, your market outlook for 2023. So we will certainly look forward to those. Yes, we will. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Indexes are unmanaged and an investor cannot invest directly in an index. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Growth stocks typically are particularly sensitive to market movements and may involve larger price swings because their market prices tend to reflect future expectations. Growth stocks as a group may be out of favor and underperform the overall equity market for a long period of time, for example, while the market favors value stocks. Value investing carries the risk that the market will not recognize the security's intrinsic value for a long time or that an undervalued stock is actually appropriately priced. Investments in global slash international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. 
economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. Two, four, five, eight, one, three, one.